that's all for now, folks. Have a great day. Uh, very quick intro, and then we'll start. So uh, yeah. welcome, okay. everyone. Sorry for the delay. We have another exciting Chagura members shiur. Today, we have the privilege of having Chacham Haleva for part two of his insightful series on the fundamentals of rabbinic mysticism. While this will be the final installment of the series, I can guarantee you that this will not be the last time we will have the honor of having the Chacham present Torah to us, and we are already excited and looking forward for next time. Uh, for those who missed last week or would like to review last week's first installment of the series, by logging into the members portal on the Chaburah's website, you can find the audio and video of the class, including recording of all the other previous members' classes. Um, if anyone has questions, you can raise your hand or write into the chat box. Uh, please, God, if the Chacham has time, we will also take questions at the end. Uh, once again, thank you, Chacham. Apologies for the delay, and the floor is yours. Okay. So today we're going to, this is actually the second in the first series, but there's two more to go in this general series. The next two were supposed to be about uh, the Kabbalah, but really the Kabbalah is, we're going to compare and contrast the next two from what we learned in this one. This today is going to be a bit uh, involved, so let's get to work. And let's see, I need to share screen, so I click on more. And here we go. So you can everybody see my screen? Okay, good. So everybody remembers last week, I hope. So I'm going to start in slide 14. We did the first 13 last time. And you remember that mysticism is about koner olamo, which means to, uh, in Jungian terms, to individuate. In rabbinic terms, you don't really find your olam, which refers to olam haba, unless you find yourself and your, your uniqueness here in olam hazeh. So liknot olamo requires finding, grabbing that moment where you have a chance to find what you are uniquely able to do that no one could do before and no one will do after. That's kone olamo. And we had one story from Maseket Abu Razara, Barbil Azar ben Dardoya, who was, uh, as we say in Spanish, a mujeriego. He chased every whore on the face of the earth within his reach. And at the last encounter, something triggered in him, and he realized it was all a waste of a life. And he asked natural phenomena to help him, which is a kind of like karma or naturalistic or almost druid-type preconception or assumption. And they all told him, we can't help you. We ourselves need to ask for God's mercy, then he realized, and that's the key, that it was all up to him. So he, in one moment, transforms, he puts his head between his knees, which I think is describing prostration. Like when you see the Muslims in the Temple Mount, their head is kind of between their knees. I think that's what that means. I don't think it meant that you sat on a chair like we have or a couch and you put your head down. No, because those items didn't exist. And they're not really, that doesn't strike me as having anything to do with tefillah, levakesh, rahamim, it just doesn't make sense. But the prostration, like you see the Muslims doing in the Temple Mount, that does look, I think that's what it meant, ben uh, birkav. So that was the story of Elazar ben Dardoya. He was a Jew, but a sinner. I mean, he didn't really care about the Torah. He cared about, um, you know, womanizing. Now we have a second case, and that is that of the Inquisitor. 
in, in the Talmud Babli, the word used is kilastonire, which is a borrowing of inquisitor. And here's the story. It's a three-part sugya, known as sugya mishuleshed. We're going to read the whole sugya. It's very interesting. You're going to see everything comes in threes. It's intentionally, quite obviously, structured in threes. And then uh, after that sugya, we'll have this full treatment of kone olamo, the second example. Then we're going to study what it means to, um, let's see here the transmission of apophatic knowledge. As you know, I'm a student of Haham Fa'ur, and his entire teaching about rabbinic mysticism begins with apophasis. You cannot have a mystical experience unless you let go of certain preconceptions that are a result of being born in, in, in a body and having biological parents and, and living in human society, which is not organized on chokhmah, but mostly organized on imagination. And, and if that, I don't mean in a negative way, but we share certain slogans, certain symbols, certain ways of doing things. Uh, like Joe Biden, I think, violated a social convention. Uh, and Camilla Parker Bowles was very distraught that he, this heathen uh, yank uh, can't even uh, well control his uh, innards while he's at a, meeting a royal. That, that's imagination. It's not horrible to release, you know, your intestinal pressures. But it's considered, uh, what was we saying, it's considered, um, um, you know, gross. That's a convention. All society works on that. Whether you sit up, stand, stand for somebody, take off your hat, put on your hat, all these kind of things, what's considered a racy car versus a kosher car. You know the drill. There's certain clothing, which if you're a rabbi, you should wear. And there's certain clothing which you shouldn't wear. And it's, you know, obviously it's, it's knowledge judged by dress or, or wine judged by the bottle more often than wine judged by the taste. All human society works this way. So in order to, to get out of that, or well, it's necessary to get out of that if you want a mystical vision. If you don't want one, it's fine. But if you do, you have to get out of that. So the process by which Maimonides describes getting out of conventionalisms, which is the eshada'at problem, is called apophasis. So we're going to, after the suga about kone olamo, we'll talk about the introductions in the guide about uh, transmitting apophatic knowledge. And then we'll actually start studying the tosefta hagiga, which is the one case we have on record of somebody who transmitted to somebody. We have the arba'anich nisula pardes, and that's next time. But they didn't trans, no one transmitted to them. They kind of did it on their own, which may explain why three failed miserably. The case of, uh, we're going to study in the Tosefta Hagiga is, uh, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai transmitted to Rabbi al-Azar ben Arach. That was done how it should be done. That was 100% proper. And you're going to see the various steps and it ends in a very positive note. But before we get to those things, so we have three tasks. Today, we're going to start the first one, which is this second example of Kone Olamo. So this is the story in Masechet Abu Dazara of the Kilastonire. Now, the Kilastonire is really an ancillary character to Rabbi Hanina ben Teradion. He was one of the Asara Haruzeb Malchut, if you ever heard of them, the 10 Hachamim who were killed by the Roman government. This is after or during the Hadrianic persecutions, and you're going to see what happened. So here I am on slide 15. So they brought him 
in front of them. That means the Romans, in, in the context of this sugya, which I didn't bring this, the rest of it, I mean, the, the preceding material, they would, when they, when they want to describe how the Roman government judged or, or had a trial uh, of a Jew who violated the rules, in this case, studying Torah, Barabim, or even studying Torah at all, they, it says, they brought him. Right, you. So that's plural. At you, who who is a object suffix for singular male. So at you, they brought who him. So they said, why did you teach Torah? Why? And and the question is obvious because we made a rule against it. You're violating the law. We conquered Israel. We're in charge. Might is right. And you are rebellious, right? Now, his answer is interesting. He says, because that's how I was commanded by my sovereign. Elohai is sovereign. So when we say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu, that means God is the sovereign. He's uh, overtly rejecting the Goy king as having authority over him. Just like Daniel more or less told uh, Nebuchadnezzar, for taxes, you're our boss. But for everything else, you're like a dog. We don't listen to you. And this is the same thing. Uh, the Nebuchadnezzar interaction ended positively. This one did not. So the Roman, whoever it was, was incensed. And this is what he did. As soon as he heard this, So immediately when they heard that, they decreed a sentence for him. You get burned alive. And your wife, she gets her head chopped off with a sword. And your daughter, she is going to be put in a, uh, a whorehouse. A whorehouse. Why it uses the word kuba, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I think they had an interior room, like a copula in Roman, in Latin. And that's what kuba zonot, a copula where you have uh, whore prostitutes. Now they that's three things, right? Three things. We're going to an- analyze each of the three in succession. Okay, why did he get burned? I mean, what did he do? We know he violated the Roman law, but from a point of view of, of God and you know God's mercy, why is he getting burned? He pronounced yod he vav he as it's written, not Adonai, like we said, but as written. How could he do that? Uh, this is in the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, known as Helek. I know in your books it's 11th, but that's wrong. The original order was uh, first Helek, uh, uh, which is 10, and then the last one is Ve'eluhenanyachinakim. So it's the 10th chapter, and that's how Harambam has it. There are two Mishnayot. One we read all the time um, before um, this is the second Mishnah that says and these are those who have no if you say not if you believe 
We don't care what you believe. If you proclaim publicly, and Torah in Hashemayim, the you see this Torah that we say Torah Moshe. It, it was made up by Moses. He didn't. He was the lawgiver. He was a great lawgiver, but there's no divinity to it at all. Oh, and the Torah nowhere shows you that you survive in some way this existence. Once you're dead, you're out. That those two. Abashaul Omer, Abashaul adds, he disagrees with the preceding. Also, if you violate the rabbinic rule against pronouncing Yod He Bav He as written. So how did he do that? There's a clear Mishnah that, that if you do that, you lose, you don't have all about why would a Hanina ben Teradion, a Musmach, a great Haham, uh, the father-in-law of the Bimeir, as you're going to see in a moment. Why would he do that? He did it to study, which is permitted, Kiltanya, as we recited in a Bareta, Now, this is not talking, the original Pasuk is not really talking about Leharot et Hashem Be'otiotav. So that's why we say kivitanya. The the subject matter of that pasuk, and I brought it right here, is to'avot ha'goyim. Can you um, learn them? So it says, lo tilmad so don't learn how to even do their rituals. What if you're a Talmud Haham and you're sitting on the Sanhedrin and you need to know what the rituals are so you can judge somebody accused of performing them? Yes, you may. So there's a barata that says, So that's why the kaf here of Kiltanya, because this barata is not talking about what it is talking about is an analogous situation where... uh, you're not supposed to pronounce the divine name, you know, the tetragrammaton, but you may to study. So what's the problem there? He probably did it to study. So why was he punished? You're going to see in a moment how he was teaching during this Roman persecution. And it was always in public so that a large crowd could benefit from him because I think there was no Bet Midrash open. They, they closed the Batim Midrash open because then if, if you left them open, the Romans would just come in and kill everybody. So I think he was forced to, but he should not have done it in that situation. That's our conclusion here. That's number one. Second sentence, Why her? Why did she get killed? Because she didn't stop him, which means she was present in his public lectures, right? She never stopped him and said, honey, you can't do that. We're in public now. You can't pronounce yod mikan amru. From here, they taught. Amru doesn't mean to say in Talmudic uh, formulations. It means to teach or transmit. Uh, you can't be an innocent bystander to someone committing a crime. Al-Piyat-Torah. If you have the opportunity to stop them, I understand they won't listen to you. But if you're the wife, you probably have a great deal of influence. You could have stopped him, and she didn't. And why would his daughter be sentenced to work in a whorehouse? 
because we have in Imra from Rabbi Yohanan, of course, Rosh Hashiva Tevariah, once upon a time, his daughter, this one, not Beruria, who was her sister, but this one, was walking in front of some Roman dignitaries, Ameru, and they were praising how pleasant her strides were. The strides, the steps, of this young maiden. From that day on, she was super conscious about stepping in a alluring way. That's that's the point. It was an alluring kind of walk. You know, like it wasn't saying, oh, she has a modest walk. It was saying, like, look at her legs, look at this inviting walk. That's why she ended up in the Kubasha Zono, right? You want to be flirty? The extreme of flirty is this, right? And this is what Rish Lakish said. What does the Pasuk in Tehillim mean when it says the sin or the twisting of my heels will end up surrounding me? It means will come and get me in the end. Things which you kind of treat trivially, you'll step on them like, like you step with your heel. It doesn't mean anything to you. In the end, they may have a cumulative effect and be very negative. You're just not aware of it. You're not even aware of it at all because you're not introspective. You're ignoring those negatives in your own personality. You don't even, you don't even know that they're there. So that's the three sentences and our justification because we believe that everything that happens is just. So there had to be some reason. We always look for some reason. When the three of them in this family left the court and were walking out to be punished, they themselves made siduk hadin on themselves. Who Amar Hasur Tamim Paolo Kihodirakab Mishpah? The Ishto Amera El Emuna Ben Avel Sadikviashar who Bito Amera Gedol Haisa Verab Haalilia Asher Ainecha Fekoho Al Kodarche Bene Adam Latet Ishkidrahab Vekifri Maalala means Gedol Haisa God is great of advising and Rab, which is synonym, he's is profound in action because your your eyes are always open you're always not open your eyes are always able to discern all the ways of, of humanity to give to each person his just path and the fruits of his own actions even if he's not aware that the actions are leading to certain fruits Amar B now we see in the old story of Al Azar ben Dardoyar, B only comments at the end. But here, the yeshiva is reciting these texts in front of him, and he's commenting as I've got a running commentary. So his first comment is, Look how great these sadbikim are, these three. He's commenting on their composure because they were 
being executed and she was going to a horrible life. At those moments, you'd be terrified in a way. Her, she has no idea what the end will be. The parents are going to be killed and they're wondering what happens to our children, our grandchildren. Now we're going to be killed and she's stuck in a whorehouse. They all know what's going to happen. You'd think they would be so terrified they, they couldn't even think. And none of, and yet, and yet they were able to articulate Pesukim of Siddukh Hadin, justifying God's sentence on themselves. Okay, that's the end of part one of that sugya. That's A. I designated A. Now we're going to do the second part, which is the middle part. This fills in some backstory. Tanura Banan. I don't know if you know what a Tanura Banan is, but there are it's a it's an intro word, technical term, introduces a baraita. There are four technical terms that introduce baraitot. This is the most authoritative. They are Tanura Banan, Tanya, Tana, and Tane. Tanura Banan means this baraita was recited in all of the yeshivot, all three. Therefore, it has maximum authority. You can quote it anywhere in rabbinic, uh, in the Amoritic yeshiva. Tanya means it was accepted only in one yeshiva. Tane, or Tana, it was uh, something that was recited by a professional Tana, but we have no indication that it was accepted anywhere. Like Tana Debeir Bishma'ya, or Tana Debeir Eliyahu. Those are schools of Tanaim. They have a formal output and they recite those and they know those, but those are not necessarily accepted by any Emoritic Yeshiva. And then Tane is a Tanaitic tradition formulated by an individual who's not a Tana, like an Emora, like Tane Rab Yosef is, is common. Rab Yosef had certain traditions and he formulated them himself into. Uh, precise language. He acted as a tanna in certain cases. Okay, so this is the highest level tanura banan. Who was Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma? Earlier generation than Hanina ben Teradion. Not the common man type like Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yehoshua, um, not that ilk but the more uh, almost aristocratic uh, uh, families. And you're going to see he was uh, not in favor of rebelling against the Romans. So he was in his end-life sickness. Our, our protagonist goes to visit him. Amarlo, and now there's going to be an interaction, three rounds. Amarlo, Halinahi. And this is how the Hachamim, even though they disagreed, they spoke to each other. He calls him Ahi, which means he's giving credence to the fact that he's a uh, equal footing as a as a haham. Halina, my brother, Don't you understand that the heavens mean God's plan? Or God is acquiescing to everything the Romans are doing. Uh, they were uh, given kingship and, and they succeeded. They destroyed his house, meaning God's house, the Ben Amikdash. Nothing happened to them. Moreover, they went inside and then they burned up the Hechal, where the menorah and the Shohan is and everything. And they killed his Hasirim. Now, Hasidim doesn't mean Lubavitch or Breslov or Satmer. In rabbinic literature, Hasid means someone who is 
A sadiq is someone who acts righteously. A hasid is someone who's very sensitive to every detail, both of his own practice and of history as it unfolds in front of him. You need hasidim in leadership positions. They killed all of those. And they destroyed the lay leaders, like you may have heard, this is that's what this means. So they virtually eviscerated every aspect or every institution of the Jewish nation, and they are still around. Nothing happens to them. So, and I heard about you. Sha'ata, this vow is a mistake. It just should be Sha'ata. Oops, no, not that. Makil Kihilot Barabim. I heard about you during this persecution that you gather large gatherings, means, you know, large crowds. Now, none of them have a Sefer Torah because that would mean they're subject to death. All they're doing is sitting watching you. They don't even ask you. You're just talking. They're watching. So you have a Sefer Torah in your head, you know, like they used to wear like a kimono kind of garb. So you can stick something in here. Imagine like a bathrobe, you stick it in here. Okay? That's the hek. You have a Sefer Torah there, and you pull it out, and you are Doresh. You read some Pesukim, and then you connect ideas to the Pesukim. Amar los. What did Rebbe Hanina ben Teradion answer? Because the point is, you shouldn't be doing this. You're openly rebelling against the nation who God has obviously given the green light to. Let the heavens have mercy. Listen, Hanina, I'm trying to tell you something substantive. And all you have to say is kind of like a slogan. It would surprise me it would surprise me if they don't end up burning you and your Sefer Torah in fire together. It was very prescient. And he accepted the prediction. So Harina says, Rabbi, my, my Lord, okay, they're going to kill me. Do I inherit Olam Habba? Amar so now Yosef ben Kisma is asking him, Did you ever do once a ma'aseh? means ma'asim tovim, a ma'aseh tov, right? Amalo, no, why, why is that? Kilu You don't have to, if you're a great haham, you're doing a lot of work anyway. So you only need, like, Rabbi Hananam bin Akasha Omer, Rasa Kaloshi, Baruchul Zakot Disrael, Fichak Herbal Emtra Mesol, Baharaman explains that Mishnah. You don't need to, to inherit Olam Habba. You only need to do one misvah, one time, totally sincerely. You don't have to do all the misvot all the time. So the Paul, St. Paul, Pauline idea, that works are a waste of time because no one's 100% compliant. That is absolutely total opposite of what the Hachamim taught. The Hachamim taught that you only have to do one misvah one time in your life properly, without ulterior motive, without distraction, without perfunctorily, just because everybody else is doing it. But you did it intentionally, once, totally, sincerely. That is enough. Uh, so he said, did you have a ma'aseh? This question reflects 
the understanding of Harambam for this Rabbi Hanina bin Akashya. Amar lo, ma'ot shel purim irhalefun li bima'ot shel sedaka v'chaylaktin la'anim. So now ma'ot shel purim means the following. They really went all out for, for Se'odat Purim. That was their practice. And if you read in Masech and Mehila, some of the descriptions of just the Mishloach Manot, you'll see that they had like, I don't know, you've ever been to those sushi restaurants with the revolving, uh, what do you call that? Conveyor belt. belt. There's all these plates filled with different kinds of sushi. When you would go to certain Hachamim's house on Purim, they had tables full of all little plates of like, a tasting menu, but you could get full in, in several of the tasting menu. And there was a huge table full of tasting menu items on plates. So they went all out. So they used to have like a kind of a fund, a personal fund, and they would save money for this Purim festivities called Ma'ochil Purim. So let's say he's waiting the whole year and he maybe has like in our terms, $2,000 or 2,000 pounds. And then he had some ma'ochel sedakah, not anywhere near that sum, but he had, I don't know, $200 he was going to distribute that week to some ani. By some mistake, his entire purim kitty got mixed up with this small amount of sedakah. What did he do? He didn't want to apportion because maybe he didn't remember the exact numbers and it'll be wrong. He didn't want to shortchange these Anim uh, one bit. This is really midar hasidu. That's what I mean by hasidu. Not hasidu has nothing to do with feeling like, oh, I love Hashem. Nothing at all to do with that. It has to do with you are a very aware and conscious mind, but not in a neurotic way. You know, like a Japanese Zen master. You can hear while you're talking to somebody, you can hear the hummingbird in the tree outside flapping its wings, so to speak. That's Hasidut. So he was so concerned that he decided to distribute the whole kitty, including the 95% of it, which was certainly the Ma'ochil Purim, to the poor. And he didn't have anything in the Asa'udat Purim as a result. Amarlo, so to be Yosef and Kismat tells him, Imken, if that's the case, you are so careful. Mehalkech, Yehi Halki, Megoralech, Yehi Gorali. Let your part in Olam Habba, let mine be as good as yours. And let your goralach means like, you know, goral means like a lottery, but in this sense it means what you get out of it. My, let my experience in Olam Habba be like yours. Right? Even though he criticized him and he disagrees with how he approached the Romans, but he admitted that this Hanina ben Teradion is a real personality, a solid, solid haham. So we know from this now, the sugya is assuming that the attentive reader, hopefully a bit of a hasid, notes this, and there's no question in our minds as readers that hanina ben teradion kana olamo, fine. We don't know when, long time before. Okay, fine. Maybe at this point about the ma'ot purim, I don't know. So the rest of the sugya is not about him. Per se, it's about the ancillary character, this kilastonire, third part C. Ameru lo hayu yami mo'apim kisma. They say, so obviously we are reading this in yeshiva someplace. Somebody formulated it. It's still in the Tanaitic period. So some Tana formulated, as you saw up above, part of the sugya is Tanura Banan. Not all of it, right? 
And this part is anonymous. We don't know who formulated it, but obviously it was presented to Rabbeinu HaKadosh in his Beddin, or his academy, his Bed Midrash. He knew about it. So Ameru, whoever knew the story, further transmitted that after this incident, this private incident between Hanina ben Teradion and Yosef ben Kisma, Yosef ben Kisma dies. Now look what happens. Who shows up at his funeral? The Roman dignitaries showed up. It was a taken, it was like a Roman attended funeral, and they made eulogies probably in their own style about him. What did that show you? They liked him. So his reaction to Haninab and Teradion reflects he was kind of pro-Roman, and he has this idea that, well, Borer Olam seems to be uh, endorsing them. So maybe we should accept. And this was the, the problematic from the point of view of Rabbi Akiva and his students, uh, including Shimon Bar Koziva. We can't do this. If the Hachamim end up in an alliance with Rome, we're going to end up like the Catholic Church. We will tell ourselves over and over, yes, it's for Torah, it's for Judaism, it's for Borei Olam, but we're going to end up the cat's paw, the agent of Rome, just like the Catholic Church. You can make any religious incantation and explanation, and a pope can have a, a bull, and it can have any other kind of bovine uh, animal, and still, you're the agent of Rome, okay? So Rabbi Akiva noticed this, and he said, we have to revolt. I know we're weak. I know it's a long shot, uh, but I'm endorsing uh, Shimon ben Koziva, known as Bar Kohba, and we're going to revolt. And he got 90% of Judeans killed, but uh, apparently, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Rabbi Akiva and his revolt and what happened afterwards. So after this funeral, where the Roman dignitaries were in full force, <speaking in Hebrew> what bad luck on the road back from the funeral of Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma, all the Romans see, that particular day, Donald Trump decides to have a rally. So all the mainstream media is there. They're coming back from the the funeral of a really good, you know, like a John McCain, like someone everybody in the media loves. And lo and behold, we come upon a MAGA, Make America Great Again rally. Uh-oh, this is illegal, though. And, and this It would be illegal in the U.S. if certain people had their way. But in Rome, ancient Rome and Judea, it was illegal. They find Hazid which was sitting and, and studying Torah to, in front of a large crowd. So he would talk and they listen. They can't be culpable because they're not doing anything. They're just watching him. And so the Romans understood the ruse. They understood he's really teaching that everybody's doing something, but we can only get him. We're going to make an example. The Sefer Torah, and he had a Sefer Torah in his heart. Probably when he heard the hubbub of all the Romans coming down the road, he put the Sefer Torah in his uh, and maybe he started singing a song so he could pretend that he was like performing. They searched him and they found the Sefer Torah and they figured out what's going They brought him. They wrapped him up like Korech on Pesach. They in Voltaron in, in, in Ladino, they wrapped him up in the Sefer Torah. And then outside the Sefer Torah, they put. Um, uh, I don't know what you say, uh, the collective, like when you buy a bunch of sticks, 
for kindling. They're tied up with something and bundle, and they surround it with bundles of branches. But these are not logs. They're like kindling, like thin branches, so they catch on fire quickly. And obviously the point is they're going to light the Sefer Torah, and then the Sefer Torah will burn him. And they lit the fire on them. Moreover, so now what they did something very Roman, clever. This is this is what they excelled at, and that tells us a story, but that's the way it goes. They said, we want him to die a slow and painful death. So what are we going to do? We bring sponges, just like the English word, of uh, wool, and we're going to dip them in water. So now they're all wet, and we put them right on his... Uh, torso, his chest. So his heart will still be beating even though his extremities are going to be burned. Because it's a fire, many of the arteries will be cauterized by the fire. So he will live long enough even though his extremities are have necrosis, they're gone. But he will live long enough to watch all this and watch his body disintegrate. But because his heart and his lungs are preserved not to burn from the wet uh, sponges, it prolongs his death. They did not want him to have an easy death. So now his daughter, look how composed they are. Though. Should I keep watching this? Obviously his family was watching. Should I be here? And what's the question? It's not whether it's you know untoward. She's asking a very profound question. Will this psychological trauma ruin me? Will I have a post-traumatic stress disorder that I'll never escape from? Hahamim were the psychiatrists. You, you went to a doctor, a rofe, if you had a physical problem, but you went to a tamir haham if you had a mental problem. So this is very apropos. She's asking him, you know me more than anybody. Will this traumatize me forever? And if yes, then I should leave. And what did he say? If it was just me being burned at the stake, I think the event would be too hard for you to deal with. He's speaking in the third person about himself. But now, because he wants to make it easy, right? So her mind is not, unless she knows what he's, that it's about him, she watches, she sees, but he was very careful. That's Midah Hasilut again. Not to refer to him in the first person to, to further hit the psyche with another realization. You know, like some people can take so much and then a little phrase that's, that's too direct and, and they start crying they emotionally uh, consumed. So he's very careful. Uh, now that he and his Sefer Torah are being burned together, you can be assured of something. He means God, who will seek payment for this disgrace of the Torah. He will also seek my revenge for my disgrace. So you can keep watching because we need to see this. So then his students asked him, Look, he's composed. He's burning. I mean, this guy is burning to death, and he's able to answer questions in a very careful way. 
no emotion. I mean, he's not overcome. He's not cursing, nothing, right? So now his students asked him, what do you see? I do see the parchments. And no, you know, the, the, the best Sefer Torah is one on Gevil. The only people who do that today are the Yemenites. My personal student here, Jordan, happens to have a Yemenite written uh, Sefer Torah on Gevil, and we use it sometimes in our Maimonidee and Minyan, and it's wonderful. They're dark brown because they're treated the old-fashioned way, and the writing is just impeccable. I see the Gevilin burning, but I don't see the letters burning. I see the letters flying upwards. Haham Fawar has a whole comment about this in Golden Doves, but I'm, I'm not going to distract further. Amrulo. So now the stu- so there's three questions here, right? Is Bito asked once, the students asked twice. Amrulo. No, sorry. The students, yeah, there's three people who are going to ask. The daughter, the students, and the executioner. Three again. The daughter asks one question. The students ask two. And guess what? The Kilastonide has three interactions with him. So this is a Sugyamishulesh once again. Uh, you don't always have you have three parts, but in, in, in three parts throughout, but in some of the parts, the lower level details are not three, 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 but sometimes one, two, three, and that's what we have here. But if you it's really easy to remember the sugya. You remember three, 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 what I've written A, B, C, and within H of A and B and C, there's three parts. And in this one, it goes one, two, three. So Petach picha v'tekane shalhevet So the student said, "Haha, why don't you open your mouth and let the flames come in? Because the wet sponges are protecting your torso, but they're not protecting your airway. So if you let, and this is true by the way, people in fires." Uh, one of the things that the emergency room doctors must check for is if the inside of the mouth and the air, the trachea is um, getting burned or it looks funny, like it looks like black specks all over it. That's usually sp- smoke exposure and the airway is going to fail and, and they actually uh, asphyxiate in the emergency room. It's happened because some people aren't aware of that. They're talking, they're normal, and then no one checked their mouth. They thought they had a sore throat, but they didn't realize that can happen. That happens to firefighters. Anyhow, why don't you open your mouth and let the shalhevet, which is the flame, enter? It's going to kill you very shortly. You, you can avoid this slow and painful death they wanted. Amar lahen, he told them, mutab shitelena, it should be shitelena, it's missing a noon. It's better that it be ta- my soul be taken, he who give it, who gave it, that's God, uh, it's these are feminine shitelenaha mishnetana because nishama is feminine right it's better that he who gave it to me should take it and he shouldn't uh, commit suicide even by hastening by a few minutes this death that's even suicide according to him and forbidden in a moment after i finish the story i'm going to show you an implication of this and the way it was understood in uh, France and Germany, which is very much related to the Kabbalah, which we're going to talk about not today, but in upcoming lectures. But since we're here, I'm going to show you the point. Amarlo Kelastonere, now the third question. So we had daughter, students, now the goy 
Roman inquisitioner. This guy must have been a Roman because they're not going to. It's rare that they would recruit a a Judean from uh, Palestine, Roman Palestine, to be an executioner for his fellow Jews. You just can't trust these guys. So they get a Roman guy, probably one of the centurions or the whatever they have, you know, all those different titles. Rabbi. Now he calls him Rabbi. I think he was just like in El Azab and something triggered in himself. Here, the uh, Inquisitioner is, he feels it's really strange the way that everybody's asking him questions and the way he answers and the way he uses the third person, not to traumatize neither his students nor his daughter. This guy is a somebody, and probably this Inquisitioner has killed many bad guys. This is not a bad guy. There's something about this guy that he is drawn to. If I increase, I add some logs. You know, you're burning with zemorot, which are twigs. I'll add some logs. It'll really increase the heat. And I'm going to get rid of these uh, sponges, these wet sponges of wool from your torso, can you bring me to a life in Olam Haba? Amar Elohim. He said, yes. That's question number one. Hashbe Ali, swear to me. Nishpalo, he swore to him. Miyad, Hibbe, or Hibba, Bishal Hebet, Menatal, Sipovon, Shosem, Al Bo, Yasea, Nishmato, Bimhera, dies from the same shall have it, but not on his own doing, on the doing of the Inquisitioner. So that's the third act. He asked two questions and he did something. That's why I call it three. Now, surprise, surprise ending. This Roman executioner, who you those were tough guys, right? They had to have a kind of a, a stomach of iron to do this job. He himself committed suicide at that moment because he would be finished when the Romans saw what he did. He jumped into the fire, which is now large enough to burn also him, and he killed himself. What happened? A bat kol, which is a kind of, it's not a sound. If there was a tape recorder there, you would not hear a thing. But in their minds, some of the people present perceived a message. It was a prophetic message, and they knew it, they, but they knew also that they're not regular prophets, so they call that batkol. It's a kind of a intense ruach hakodesh that happens to a group of people at the same time. All the yaset, most of the batkol that are described in the Talmud happen to more than one person. So it's like collective prophecy. Now, this, this uh, speech uh, now, why do you call it a batko as opposed to a benko? Any ideas? So, in Jungian analysis, and one of my my first teacher before Haham Fa'ur was a Jungian analyst in Shemaria, uh, prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh don't involve the rational mind. Don't involve, you know, if you're a rationalist, a cold rationalist like Nathan Slifkin, that path is not going to lead you to Ruach HaKodesh. But prophecy involves the entire psyche, most of which 
like an iceberg, is below the surface. Most of you is unconscious. In the unconscious is where the anima primarily operates. The anima is your feminine side if you're a male. When you have a dream or when you have intuition, uh, like like a kind of feminine intuition developed in, in males, that's coming from the deep unconscious. So a bat kol appears to men somehow associated with the feminine. You see patterns like women. You don't see a clear message like, like you would in your conscious mind. And you don't see it consciously. You sense it. That's the bat kol. That's why. And this bat kol said, We know from the last time that when the bat kol calls you to be, then you are really are a be. Uh, we knew this about him, but this is corroboration. And the executioner are invited to All of this, again, is being transmitted in, or discussed at some instance in front of Rabbi Noach Bachar bi ve'amar. Now, Rabbi was crying again. He was distressed because he probably feels that he never had this moment happen to him yet, right? He's still... He's individual because he's a great haham, but he was trained for this his whole life, like I said last time. And maybe he didn't find his unique individuality yet. So he's crying. And he said, There are those who acquire that moment where they know who they are. He's referring to the Kilastonire. We already know about Hanna Beteradion. And this is the kind of running refrain, running through these three sugyot. I mean, we're not going to study the third, but there's a third, and that's what this is. Okay, so this is Kone Olamo. Why did I teach all this? Because in Homo Mysticus, Haham Fa'or, in the, in the very introduction, refers you to the notion of Kone Olamo is an absolute necessary condition to Homo Mysticus, to having a mystical experience. Now, this sugya, I told you, relates to martyrdom. And martyrdom is the driving impulse for the Kabbalah of France and Spain. I think that's true. I think it's a, it's a response to the Crusades, but other things too. But, but the, it's one of the major factors. And I'm not alone. There's someone named Lippmann Badov. He was an in-house uh, intellectual property counsel for AT&T for I think 25 or 35 years. Then he got a graduate degree in Jewish studies, and he wrote several books. One of them is all about the connection between mysticism, which he means Kabbalah, modern, I mean, recent mysticism and Jewish mysticism, and the terrible suffering of the Crusades. And he thinks that the trauma of the Crusades forced people to look for some some better realm or some, some way out, and that brought about the, the Kabbalah. So now, what what about martyrdom? Uh, and now I'm quoting from an article uh, written by Etzion.org. This is Yeshivat Har Etzion. They publish lots of uh, uh, memoranda, let's say, little articles about Jewish, uh, the Perasha, but also about uh, histor- historical events. And this is one in the series they have about his- Jewish history. So, this is uh, the author, I forgot his name, he's some rabbi, Yeshivat Har Arsion, and this is his, within his series on Jewish history. He's talking about the First Crusade. So, Rabbi Yaakov ben Meir, 
also known as Rabbeinu Tam, was one of the most renowned Ashkenazic rabbis who lived in France during the Crusades. He personally witnessed the tragic events described earlier in his article. I'm not bringing it here. His ruling is that under dire circumstances, if one suspects that one will be tortured into apostasy, suicide is permitted and perhaps even encouraged. And you have to see the Tosafot on our sugya that I just read. Uh, Remember, students say to him, why don't you open your mouth and hasten your own death? And he says, no, it's required. Whoever The one who, who uh, gave me my nishama has to be the one to take it. Okay, so that stands for the proposition that the Hachamim did not believe in any kind of suicide, even in these dire circumstances, right? This opinion is based on the Talmudic story about the 400 youths, that's 1857b, you may remember, also involving the Romans, <coughs> 400 young people were brought on, taken captive and brought on a boat to Rome. <coughs> they understood that they were going to be uh, prostitutes, both men and women. So the women first throw themselves into the sea. They kill themselves on the way. The men ask themselves, should we do it? And they answer, yes, we should. If it's natural for them, means sex, right? If it's natural to be a prostitute, I mean, a woman is, you know, the client enters the woman, but it's, although it's horrible, it's natural. How much for us where it's not natural? And they meant they're going to be homosexually raped. That's what, that's their life. They threw themselves into the sea also. So, some people tried to take that story and um, transform it into legitimizing suicide. Okay. But there's more. Could you kill your own children? That's another step. Rabbi Yom Tov ben Abraham Ashbilai, also known as Haritba, lived in Spain, quotes these opinions. He quotes Rabbeinu Tam on this sugya, justifying martyrdom. And he's perplexed. He doesn't understand it because the clear tenor of what Haninab and Teradion said is you can't do anything to take your own, hasten your own death in any way, even if you're already dying. And claims that although these questions require further attention, the great rabbis of France have already ruled in favor of the practice. I personally, when I read this ritva, I was uh, flabbergasted. He said he understands the problem. He sees that the sugya does not support suicide in any way. And he says, but, vechen hora zaken. A, zaken is a term you use to refer to someone who's a member of the Sanhedrin. Because, and he means a French rabbi, a French rabbi ruled it, I'm, the question is over. I'm not going to challenge it. I thought that was a, a bad event. I didn't like that. Anyhow, now, Rabbi Meir ben Baruch, that's the Maharam of Rotenburg in Germany, but he was born in Worms, was one of the greatest Ashkenazic rabbis in the 13th century. In his book of response, he discusses a tragic question which he was asked. Is penance required of someone who slaughtered his wife and children during the great massacre at Koblenz, which occurred on, the, on April the 2nd, 1265? The man questioning the Maharam of Rotenburg tried to kill himself, so he's asking about himself, but at the last minute, he was stopped by somebody. So now he's saying, I survived this thing. I killed my wife and children. Do I need to do some kind of penance? Uh, that itself is already, if you're astute, if you're a Hasid, the notion of penance is not a Jewish one. So already we're thinking in a Catholic milieu. The Maharam begins by acknowledging that he is at a loss as to how to rule. Why don't you say, we don't have penance in Judaism. I know you feel horrible. Here's what you should do. You know. However, similar to Rabbi Tam, 
He relies on the cases of the 400 children and King Shaul. Also, King Shaul, as you know, in the war, he killed him. He, he fell on his sword. That's where the English saying, he fell, to fall on your sword, comes from. Certainly, one who kills himself for the unity of God is permitted to do so. That means Kiddush Hashem. Regarding killing others, he discusses the matter and concludes. The allow- this is the Maharam Merotenburg. The allowance in this matter is widespread, and we find that many great people in such tragic circumstances killed their sons and daughters as a matter of course. And it would appear to me to bring a proof of its permissibility, just as we say that the verse in Bereshit forbidding suicide authorizes it on the basis of the story of Shaul, so we may say that it equally authorizes one to kill another for the sake of Kiddush Hashem. Whoever imposes upon this father penance speaks evil of the pious among preceding generations. Since his intention was to do good, and he hurt those most dear to him only out of abundance of love for our Creator, may he be blessed, and they begged him to do so, one should not be severe with this father at all. The Hidush of the Maharam is that not only does he permit suicide, he also permits killing children under these circumstances. Now, what is Lipman Badav point? The trauma suffered by fathers who did this and lived to survive demanded some kind of escape hatch, some mental escape hatch. That is the impetus for the Kabbalah that we had, the Zoharic and the Bahir and the other Kabbalah. There's other forces like Mirkia Eliad goes into. The, there was a pre-Christian kind of naturalistic, almost druidic uh, religion in Europe. And the Kabbalah evokes many of those themes. But according to Lippmann Badaf, what broke the dam, the straw that broke the camel's back and, and caused the eruption of this Kabbalah was the trauma of the First Crusade. So, Kone Olamo, on the subject of Kone Olamo. Uh, speaking for my own group, we are a small minority within a minority within a minority. Most of us grew up in a general Sephardic community with its post-expulsion, last 500 years or so, uh, Ari, Heda, Benish Hai, etc., liturgical innovations and Numin Hagim. And the assumptions behind them being the dominant key symbols and what made or makes one Sephardi. And I'll give you some examples, which I, I always felt out of it because of these. You may have heard that on Rosh Chodesh, of course, you wear tefillim. That's the law. And in the old days, the Hachamim would wear tefillim all day. No question about that. But today, if you go to any Sephardic minyan, you're supposed to take off your tefillim before Rosh Chodesh. Why? A pill pool. There's no why. Somebody thinks that because in the in the Kiddushah of Musaf we use the formula Keter Yitinu Lecha, which itself is new. Harabam never heard of it. Rab, Rabbenav, Rab Asher, Rabbeinu Hananel, they never heard of that. If you look in the old Mustara prayer book, it's Naktishah. But because we say Keter Yitinu Lecha, which is placing a crown on God, so to speak, and probably connected to the Sifira called Keter somehow, Tefillim somehow contradicts that. So I always said to myself, let's say you're right. But it contradicts in whose mind? In yours, if you buy into the premise. God doesn't get confused. He, he knows. If you want to say a kiddushat to him using the formula, and you also want to perform the misvah which he told you to wear tefillim, I don't think he minds whatsoever. Why I don't understand why you guys make these minhagim. First of all, you don't 
You can't legislate post-Talmud. You didn't do this with a Bedin. Some book wrote X and some people did it and then it got the snowball effect and everybody starts doing it. And now, if you want to wear your tefillin on Chodesh, you get attacked. And to, to quote Fonzie, not cool, Richie. Not cool at all. That ain't cool, right? And there's several others like, uh, you know, they're called Tarte de Satre. So here's the law. I'm going to tell you the absolute Talmudic law. You didn't. You uh, did not pray mincha. You go to a synagogue. They are praying arvit before sunset, which is mutar. Tefilat ha'arev en lahakeva. Therefore, emedaptekin bismanaha. You may pray arvit before sunset. Certainly, as early as pelech mincha. Maybe even earlier, but certainly, I'll be the sugan berachot in twenty-eight a. Certainly, as early as pelech mincha. You know what you do? You pray Arvid with that synagogue, with that minyan, if you wish, because it's it's favored to pray with the minyan. And after you leave, you can pray minha, and there's no contradiction. This thing that Maran says is written in no place. Just somebody had the idea that it contradicts. I don't think God, who's created quantum physics and relativity and all kinds of other weird and strange physical phenomena that only my great-great-grandchildren will come to know about, is confused because you pray Arvid before sunset, and then in the same time slot, you prayed Minha. To me, that kind of God is not a God at all. That, that's absurd. So all these, these are all post-expulsion influence of speculative Kabbalah, etc., etc. So uh, this was definitely a big change from the Amoraitic, Geonic, and Delusion world that our ancestors once knew, in which the actual texts reflect. Why am I saying this? I don't believe you can have the rabbinic mystical experience described in Masechet Hagigah and pointed to over and over and over in, in, in Harambam's Dalalit Il-Ha'irin, the guide for the perplexed. You can't ride two horses. If you want that, if you want what Fa'ur calls homo mysticus, then you can't have these new Kabbalah-based minhagim which teach you that there's a God who gets confused and, and there's like a metaphysical entity called a time slot, and only one tefillah, arvit, or minha can exist in it, and there's many, 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 many more as well. Okay. So informing my olam, I'm inescapably driven to present and practice a very alternative option to the modern version of Sephardic Judaism that surrounds me. So I was born in the time I was born into. I don't have to follow everybody in the herd. And that is Kone Olamo. That's how I believe I'm Kone my Olam. And that's what I teach folks. And, you know, I'm offering a choice. So as we see it, means our little group, what is required to study rabbinic mysticism is to, like the protagonists of these two Talmudic stories, in one defining moment, really let go of everything, quote, you always knew and were always told was real. One needs to pierce through the mythology of modern Judaism, in my opinion. This is, by the way, disclaimer. This is not the view of the Habura or any of its organizers or founders. It's my view and those of a number of my students who agree with me on their own, from their own individual perspective. I just want you to know, so the record is clear. I'm a lawyer, so I'm good at making records. This is, I'm making the record. Okay, let the court report. I'm sure that I said it slowly so the court reporter can hear it. That's fine. Okay, so what you have to do in one defining moment 
is to really let go of everything you always knew and were told was real. One needs to pierce through. I'll give you another example. So I'm from Seattle, Washington, where I am now. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I started to notice something was, I'll use a Seattle, Washington phrase, something was screwy in Denmark with all of this. So I, I, I didn't understand it, but I tried to become aware of Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. And I once mentioned something from the Guide of the Perplexed to the rabbi of the Turkish synagogue in Seattle. His name is Rabbi Solomon Maimon, uh, Salam, Allah HaShalom. So he told me with disdain in his face and his voice and condescension, you know, the guide is only for people who are like half apikursim. And he was born in Brusa in Turkey, but he said it like this, who are half apikursim, and so the Rambam was trying to do something so that they don't totally fall out. Uh, I'm 61. I've been studying the guide for 40 years. Nothing would be further from the truth. The guide for the perplexed is the path back uh, to Gan Eden and teaches you how to navigate that uh, spinning sword. Nothing could be more absurd than to say he wrote it for Apikorosim. He wrote it for his student, Yosef Ibn Aknin, for goodness sake. That guy was a genius. If he wrote, if you read his books, you would understand. Okay, so now you have to pierce through the mythology of modern Judaism and all these truisms and slogans that you hear and endless shalashudas vorts and just forget about what everyone knows. What everyone knows is not your individual perspective. Be it Tosafoth and other post-Talmudic unauthorized legislation, just so everybody knows. Uh, I'm of the opinion, I'm certainly not alone. You cannot legislate post-Talmud against the Talmud, even if it doesn't fit your society. The better thing to do is say, we cannot possibly in Northern Europe wait six hours after eating meat to eat dairy. We can't do it. We know it's just a rabbinic thing. The actual, it's a second tier rabbinic uh, gezerah because the first tier is don't eat meat and milk together. The real biblical thing is don't eat meat and milk that was cooked together. Biblically, you could have a, a salami and cheese sandwich. So the hachamim said, don't mix them. Fine. Then the hachamim said, and more, more, got to wait. That's a Talmudic term. It's a technical term. It does mean approximately six hours. If you can't do it, don't unwrite, uh, eviscerate the text with some kind of Pharisaic casuistry. Just say, I can't do it. Maybe if we go in another society one day, I can do it. But for the record, I'm trying to do the best I can. I can't comply with this. So, so what? That's what I think you should do. What they did in the Middle Ages was not that. They had to indulge the illusion that we are 100% compliant with the law, which is Pauline, by the way. That's because they live in a Catholic milieu, right? I told you at the beginning of this class that according to Hanbam and the Mishnah, you could do every Avon in the book. As long as you did one misvah properly, fully, sincerely, without ulterior motive, you are Yoresh Haya Olam Habba. So you don't have to buy into the premise that we can't say, I can't do this one. Anyhow, what they did, though, is they changed the sugyot, they changed the text of the Talmud Babli, so that I have to go chase after manuscripts whenever I want to study. And they rewrote certain sugyot. So I think you have to let go of that, let go of the standard printed texts, let go of magical Judaism and segulas. 
let go of the other side of the coin, strict rationalism and cold, dispassionate analysis. You can't be a prophet if you don't have emotions. Take it from me. Or numerology and gematria. Gematria is geometry. It's congruence. Like just like two triangles are congruent, if you study geometry, if two words have the same number using a numeral system that associates a letter with a number, they're congruent. They don't have, there's no inherent connection between two words. It, this language has 22 consonants. You know, I could calculate the statistics for you if you wanted to. I just don't want to spend the time. The probability of finding numerous words that have the same number value in a consonants, a language that has 22 consonants, <laughs> which assigns the values 1 through, through 400 to those letters, is immense. It's huge. You're always going to find them. In general, to leave anti-Maimonidean Judaism in all of its various flavors in the rearview mirror. Now, this is hard. It makes you feel adrift with no path forward. And you were going to see when we studied the Arba'anich Nisula Pardes, when you leave the world of imagination, when you leave the world of thinking of God as that smiling grandpa in the sky called Hashem, that you could talk to like you talk to your sweet old grandpa, when you leave that, you feel alone. You feel, well, is there nothing? Am I in the void? That's There's a, there's a point where you get lost between you left what's called Nikhve Ba'ur, and you go to the other extreme, which we call nichveh bashelik. That's cold, rational, feelingless analysis like you're a robot. That, that's not it either. That's why David HaMelech, when he wanted prophecy, he played music. Okay? Music doesn't operate on the rational mind. Okay? Often, as for Abraham or B'nai Levi, the choice is this stark. Uh, like, and, and uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is describing B'nai Levi, who did kill... 3,000 people after the Ayagel incident, even if they were their relatives. Even your own children. There's a sequence here, right? This is from Zoda Beracha. So I don't even know. I've never seen these people who claim to be my mother and father. It's like I never saw them. This brother who I grew up with, who we had tree houses with, who we did all kinds of fun and games in school. I never reckon. I don't know who this guy is. And my own children, for a parent to pretend that they don't know their children, that's even worse. This is like zu af zu. This is, it gets more and more egregious as you go in the sequence of three. He, they, but they were able to have the intestinal fortitude to say that, and they killed, when Moshe said, kill anybody who participated, they killed them. Ki shameru imratecha ubritecha insoru, because they guarded your transmission, your misvot, and your covenant, they would guard. Okay, so now I'll just do this slide only, because it's already four, uh, 457 Eastern, but this is where we'll go next time. So now we move to the transmission of apophatic knowledge. How did it work? Right? So we're going to study the one incident recorded in rabbinic literature of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai transmitting apophatic knowledge to Rabbi uh, Al-Azhar uh, ben Araf. That's the Tosefta. I want to read the Mishnah now because it's a kind of a zipped version of what you find in the Tosefta and it kind of lays the ground rules. And as you hear it, 
Watch my query. Is there a golden apple here? Remember last time we studied about golden apples in a silver mesh? So there is an outward sense of this Mishnah, and that's the one that Hanabam tells you in the Pirush Mishnayot. But there's also an inner sense of this Mishnah, and, and see if you can figure it out. In Dorshin Ba'arayot Bishlosha, Velobemaase Bereshit, Bishnaim, Velobam Merkava, Beyahid, Ella in Kenaya Hacham, Umevin Midaato, Vehonga Mistakel, Bearbaa de Barim Ratuilo, Lulobala Olam, Male Malan, Male Maltan, Malifnim, Male Ahor, Vehon Shelohas Al Kibot Hono. I'll read it one more time. That's the classic tune from Mishnayot. By rabbinic law, when you recite a Mishnah, you must use a tune. That's at the end of Masechet Nevilah. Ask me why no Jewish school does that. With very few exceptions in Israel, I don't have an answer. This is a sequence, right? It starts three, two, one. In Dorshin Ba'arayot Bishlosha, Velo Bema'ase Bereshit, Bishnaim, Velo Bamerkava, Beyahid, Ella in Kenaya Hacham, Umevin Midato, Vehola Mistakel, Bearbaa, Debarim, Ratuino, Lolo Bala Olam, Male Malan, Male Matan, Malifnim, Male Ahor, Vehol Shelohas Al Kebon, Kono. So this Mishnah is the first Mishnah in chapter 2 of Hagigah, has three bavot, we call them, three stanzas, like baba. Baba literally means uh, a gate, you know, like baba batra. We Sephardim don't say the baba when we refer to those masechtot. We say kamma, mesia'ah, batra. Um, but a baba is like a, a stanza. So, you do not teach uh, about Arayot with three students. So there's a teacher and there's a number of students. The teacher is always there. The students here are in a sequence three, two, one. If you have three students, you don't teach about Arayot. Uh, why? Harambam says, because if people are always looking for a way out of Arayot, so it means they're tempted to violate the rules of Arayot. You know, not with your grandma, but... There are many, like your wife's sister, perhaps, and people who are, you know, your your father's second wife, who's maybe a trophy wife. You've seen that happen. That happens in mafia families all the time. So people are tempted. So if you have three students and one asks a kusha of the teacher, the other two will kibitz among themselves. And later, they wouldn't have heard it because they were talking what the teacher said and answering the question of the third guy. But they'll say, oh, yeah, he told he, he never said anything about that. It must be okay. Right? You, you'll use a self-rationalization to violate the rules of Arya. That's what Arabam says. That's what the Talmud says. Is there a golden apple here? Now, Ma'asib Bereshit is uh, cosmology. It's not just physics. It's how the physical laws... That we now, by the way, Plato uses the word laws, and all I know, all Western uh, uh, disciplines call natural law natural law. The Hebrews never did that; they didn't call them law. They call them um, halichot olam, or olam kemin haro holech. The way the patterns, what, what we see as patterns of behavior of the universe, but there's some patterns we don't see. 
we we have a very limited view because we have a terrestrially limited view, right? And now we could send, you know, the Hubble telescope and Voyager. Still, we're not getting very far. This universe is huge. Maybe it has four trillion bodies, planets, whatever. We know very, very, very few of them. Um, so we have a limited view. So cosmology is about how do you set these patterns in motion? And is there variation between them? You could read now the Hachamim views on these subjects, which now in, in the last century only the, the West has come upon quantum physics, quantum mechanics. Yeah, there's variation. And as a matter of fact, you can never know with precision a subatomicals, subatomic particles, both their, its position and its momentum, all the proxy for speed. You can't. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The more you know the position, the less you know the speed. The more you know the speed, the less you know where, the, where it is. And, and that's just a fundamental limit of the universe or perhaps our knowledge of the universe. I mean, quantum mechanics also recognizes that what they are describing is not necessarily what's out there, but what of the out there the human mind can perceive. And if, at least from our perception, there's definitely randomness in these things. What does that tell me? That tells me that when you ask Bore Olam to, to, you're stuck. And you say, could you please open a door for me? I don't see any door. I think I'm stuck. I don't know how to get out of it. And a door opens. That's because there's, there's room to maneuver. There are no laws. It's not cut in stone like, like the Torah. It's not hakuk or harut ala luhot. There's room. Anyhow, that's what cosmology is. So how does Bore Olam set all this into motion? And what is the room for him to maneuver within it? That's Ma'asib Rashid. You can't do that with two, but you could with one, therefore. Why is that? The subject matter is so much dependent upon the individual speaking and the individual hearing. It's like the same idea as Kone Olamo. You cannot teach Ma'asib Rashid the same way to two different people. It's impossible. The interaction, just like subatomic particles, is determined by both particles. What comes out of that interaction is a function of both particles, right? Oxygen uh, reacting with chlorine is completely different than oxygen reacting with carbon. Uh, now, ma'asem merkaba. And that's a kinui for like rocheb aravo, that God rides upon the, the upper heavens. It means he's like a, a rider of a donkey is controlling the donkey, even though you just see the donkey. The universe is like the donkey, and there's a rider, and the rider is controlling, but you may not see the rider. You have to infer that the rider is commanding the donkey. And how? That's Merkava. That's more than just physics, and more, more than galaxies. It's, it's more than that. But it's not about Sefirot. So you can't transmit to him because even that is so individual that even your words would taint his understanding and he'd be stuck forever trying to fit into your words and it doesn't work. So you can plant seeds, say half or 10% and see if he can knit them together. That's maybe midato, and that's what happened with all transmission of apophatic knowledge, but that's what we're going to see in Al-Azab and Arach. That's the first Baba of this Mishnah. Second, whoever looks at, now you can't know, so it's mistakel. When you're looking at something that you can't process, that's just a casual looking, right? You view. Whoever views uh, these four things, it's as if he should never have been born. What's above you, in the upper, upper heavens? What's below? Now, they probably... Uh, 
conceived of the earth, the, the things below the earth, right? Or below this galaxy, maybe, I don't even know. I mean, up and down are wholly relative and all, uh, you know, atmosphere, I mean, um, astro- astrophysics, right? Because up and down relative to what? So it means all these things are something that's so far out of the human ken that if you spend mental energy trying to do it, you kind of twist yourself, right? It's like your car can operate at a, within a certain speed and a certain temperature. If you run your engine when it's 112 degrees and you don't cool it properly and you overtax it, the engine is going to break. Now, it would never have broken if you didn't overtax it. So this is how you overtax your mind. But just like an engine, it's non-reversible. If you tax your mind in this way, because you can't operate after you've done this. So then it would be better had you never been born, you never have had the chance to destroy yourself. So what's above, what's below, these are all relative. What happened before, before what? Probably Bereshit. And what will happen after this universe? Is there an after? How does it work? That's the third Baba. That tells you the limits that you operate within, even the Merkava Biyahid. So even this, this individual, the homo mysticus, who is able to tie together the hints that his teacher spewed about or strewed about for him, he has to know enough. Mevimidato means what? Means not know his own limits. You must know your own limits. That's part of Kone Olamo. You know what you cannot know. Now, kevod kono is not kevod adonai. That's like a, a prophetic display from God. But kevod kono is you, your neshama. You are the honor of your uh, kono means creator, but also means the ones who formed you. Like Hava says, kaniti ish et adonai. Kone shamayim ba'aris doesn't mean he owns it or buys it. It means he formed it. Right? So whoever doesn't worry about properly treating your own mind, this is a further limitation that is incumbent upon this Take care of your mind. Don't do what the three out of the four of the who entered the Pardes did. They ruined themselves forever. The ending was horrible. These were great hahamim. One went crazy, one died. And one Elisha bin Abiyah didn't go crazy, but he became so cynical that he gave up You'll see, we'll see. He didn't give up Misvot de Oreta. He did not. But he gave up certain Gezerot and he was outside the, the circle. You know? That's common in the Mishnayot. They have a key phrase that they echo over and over. So in the last two, we, we echo that. Uh, now, is there a golden apple here? I'll, I'll say it. Unless someone has an answer, I'll check the chat now. Yeah, Bab means a gate. Yeah, we know that. Yes, Baba Bab comes from is a uh, borrowed from Jewish Aramaic where Baba. Uh, okay. Penance is a is the could it be the actual word penance here is a bad translation of the word teshuvah. Well, I'm sure they're associated it with the word teshuvah, but once you go into the realm of penance, so you got to know a few things. Here's some history. You heard of Sefer Hasidim? Sefer Hasidim is a heroic work. It's the kind of heroic work that Miguel de Cervantes, who was a converso, was making fun of in Don Quixote. So Sefer Hasidim is full of penance. If you do this evil thing, you should sit and go naked in the snow. So there was a whole 
mystical, pietistic uh, movement in, in Germany and was spread into France. And that's where this question came from of penance. To me, it, it's, it's unwitting assimilation from the semantic environment of, of a Catholic environment. If you read Sefer Hasidim, you're going to see a heroic work. It's like, it's like they treat Judaism as being a knight, just like exactly what Cervantes was making fun of, exactly what Cervantes was, was illustrating in the mental defect of Don Quixote. That's what Sefer Hasidim is. So with all due respect to everybody, and, and uh, you know, we weren't born in their time or, or we didn't suffer anywhere near their suffering um, the Goyim may not may be anti. We throw around the word anti-Semitism, but this anti-Semitism is nothing at all like the Crusades, even in a good time after the Crusades. So they suffered, but we have to be honest. I think this penance idea comes from the Catholics. So anyhow, is there a golden apple here? What is the connection between Arayot, Maaseh Bereshit, and Merkava? Remember, the real sequence here is about individuality, which is the flip side of the coin of Kone Olamo. You grab that unique moment that you know who you are, and you know that you're unique, and you know it won't ever happen again. It never happened before. That's Kone Olamo. What is Arayot, the Soharamam's explanation, which is in the Talmud, that's where he gets it, of, well, if three are there and one is asking a kusha, the other two are going to talk to themselves and they won't hear the law, and then they'll spin it afterwards as if it's mutar because everybody's motivated, can't help themselves around arayo. I don't think so. This is a sequence of apophasis. So these are three things in this order that a human or a homo mysticus, let's say that, has to go through as he's letting go of the conventionalisms and the truisms and the assumptions that society tells him are real. What is the apophasis uh, involved with arayot? Well, it's involved with male-female interaction. And it's what Carl Jung calls projection of the anima. So every, every male has in his unconscious a female aspect. And often when he meets a girl he likes, it's not because... He likes her that much. It's because for whatever reason, it is easy for him to project his own notion of the feminine onto her. And Carl Jung describes certain women, they call them, he calls them anima carriers, who are able to be all things to all men. Any, any man who meets them, she senses intuitively what he's looking for and fills the role. So he feels like he's getting exactly the woman of his dreams. That's his soulmate, but it's not. Neither of them understand what's happening. So in order to break, to really have a relationship with, between a man and a woman, both have to break the projection. Her, she cannot project her animus onto him, and he cannot project his animus onto her. They have to see each other as they are, which means accepting some non-ideal behaviors, attributes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, you, you see her on the date all dressed up the next morning, uh, her hair is mussed up and there's no makeup and etc. If you can accept that and still see through to the real woman, you've overcome the projection of the animal. That's apophasis number one. Everybody has to go through. Not everybody does. That's why Jung had a lot of good